Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. We couldn't do our jobs without the interpreters, and the Taliban understood that they were the critical link, and that if they could kill the interpreters or dissuade them from working with us, that we would be incapable of being able to do our jobs over there. These people are, are, are being hunted right now by the Taliban. Um, they are marked for death. And uh, unless we take them with us as we withdraw, they're going to die. Well, folks, today on the podcast, our guest is Matt Zeller, who earned his master's degree in international relations, public administration, and security studies from the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs in 2006. Zeller is currently the co-founder of No One Left Behind, a national organization dedicated to protecting Afghan interpreters who played a pivotal role for the U.S. military in their efforts fighting off the Taliban. Zeller is championing the efforts to safely bring home the tens of thousands of interpreters who helped in the war against the Taliban. And with good reason, as his interpreter saved his life when his unit came under fire during an ambush in Afghanistan in 2008. We will hear all about these adventures of what Matt is doing to champion this worthy cause. It's a relevant story. Matt, it's gotten a lot of national attention, especially with U.S. forces completing their withdrawal from Afghanistan by the end of August. What is the latest on the status of these interpreters, given this ever-evolving situation? Well, John, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be on the podcast. Uh, the latest is as such. There are currently 71,000 Afghans. That includes um, 18,000 of them are the actual people who performed work with us, the interpreters, the engineers, the, the truck drivers, the food service workers, right? anybody we call wartime ally. Now, most of those people are interpreters, but again, there's some engineers and others in there. And then the rest of them are the family members. So each individual who applies for a, one of these life-saving visas often comes on average with about three or four more people with them, a spouse and children. But the long and short of it is, right, is that uh, these people are, are, are being hunted right now by the Taliban. Um, they are marked for death. And uh, unless we take them with us as we withdraw, they're going to die. Um, so the latest is there is a massive movement that has been built over the last couple of months that involves veterans, faith leaders, uh, a huge bipartisan coalition in Congress, all urging the president of the United States to do one thing, which is to evacuate our allies, ideally to the U.S. territory of Guam. Um, we, we picked Guam for a couple of reasons. It's got a historical precedent. In 1975, we evacuated 130,000 of our South Vietnamese allies mm. to Guam. In 1996, we evacuated 6,600 of our Kurdish allies out of northern Iraq to Guam. And so, you know, the island has a history of, of being sort of America's first place of refuge for its wartime allies. We don't want to, to stay on Guam forever. We just want to get them to a place where they're safe and then we can process their permanent applications for asylum and security. Um, you know, we had hoped that um, the Afghan government would be able to meet the security needs of these people and that they could have remained in Afghanistan while we processed their visa applications. But it's very clear now that the Taliban is likely months, if not weeks away from taking over the entire country. Um, and they've already started, like I said, hunting down these people and, and murdering them. So what we are proposing is the largest airlift since 1948, since the Berlin airlift. 
Um, and um, thus far, um, you know, we haven't seen any movement of these people out of, of Afghanistan, which is awful. Um, but we have made tremendous progress. Uh, last week, the President of the United States announced uh, something called Operation Allies Refuge, which is exactly this, the evacuation of our Afghan wartime allies. What we don't know is how many of them and where they're going and when they leave. It's, it's a terrifying situation if you think about it for these brave you know, soldiers who, I mean, they served alongside of you guys in yeah. combat. And, and we'll get to the story about you and your interpreter, uh, Janice, the role that he played in, in saving your life. But it just seems to me um, that this would be a no brainer, Matt, that these people who put their lives on the line and helped with the vital role of communicating with the soldiers and the villages, that they would be given this refuge of, of being granted safety. What was the holdup? Why has this taken so long? It's, it's too, it's a great question. Um, th- the answer, as I understand it, is it's, it's, it's a couple of factors. The first is there was a belief within the Biden administration <clears throat> that the, the visa program that, that these people actually apply for, something called the special immigration visa, that that program functioned and that it would be adequate enough to be able to, um, to uh, evacuate these people under its own auspices, right? So the way the SIV program works is an Afghan has to provide 24 months cumulatively. Uh, it doesn't have to be all consecutive. You can break it up over periods of time, but they have to provide 24 months of what we deem as both honorable and valuable service to the United States. Now, how does that get verified? Someone like me who wore the uniform has to recommend and nominate the person for a visa, right? Then they have the person applying for the visa has to prove to the government that they're in duress because of their service. And then so long as they can pass the most arduous national security background investigation that our country can muster. I mean, when when people like Mitch McConnell and others talk about extreme vetting, this is the gold standard. There's no more difficult visa program to get through in the world than this one to come to the United States. But if they meet those criteria and they can clear those three hurdles, uh, again, they and their spouse and their children can move to the United States. And when five years of after having lived here for five years, they can then apply for citizenship. This program has existed in some form since 2008. And in that time, it, both for Iraqis and Afghans, actually. And in that time, we've our country has helped welcome over about 80,000 total people combined from Iraq and Afghanistan, the majority of them now having come from Afghanistan. The holdup has been that, again, the Biden administration initially believed that this visa program was sufficient enough to, to just move their people on the own, that that all the applicants in the current backlog would would have their their cases processed in a reasonable time frame. And that, you know, just given regular commercial air travel, they'd be able to get out of the country just like the previous 80,000 others have. In truth, John, uh, even if the Biden administration quadrupled the number of staff that uh, processes these visas, it would still take four years to get through the current black backlog. We just we just don't have time. The, the program is broken for, for way too many reasons for us to get into on this podcast. We could do an entire podcast series just on how broken the pro, that program is. But the other big factor, and this is key, is that you have a number of holdovers within the, 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 the government that either came from the Trump administration or, or, or elsewhere who truly believe that in some way that these people pose a threat. And that therefore we need to find other areas outside of the United States to bring them to. 
Um, and what that unfortunately has resulted in is instead of the administration dedicating its time into actually getting these people to Guam, where again, we have all the resources in place, we've got all the ex past experience to do this, they have spent an inordinate amount of time trying to find another country on the planet that will take these people. And you know what they've learned? They can't find anybody. Because as far as everyone else is concerned, this is an American problem that requires an American solution. These people shouldn't end up in some refugee camp in, say, Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan, you know, indefinitely, you know, for the next the rest of their lives. They should be brought to America. They should have their cases processed. And again, I should point out, John, that in the, again, the 13 years that this program has existed, not a single nefarious individual, not a one, has ever been able to get to the United States through this program. So I, I'm very confident in saying that going forward, no one is going to get through the United States who's a bad individual using this program. But on the rare, rare chance that somehow some bad guy was able to sneak onto one of these evacuation flights, that's the beauty of bringing them to Guam. It's an island. They're not going to get be able to go anywhere. They're going to be stuck on the island. And if we're going to catch them there, and at that point, we'll either put them in jail or we'll figure out something else to do with them, right? But for the vast majority of these people, they're good and decent people. Their lives are in threat and in danger because of the service they provided to us. And I'll add one more thing, John, and this might be the, 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 the most disappointing reason why we haven't done it, which is it seems to be that this administration is afraid of taking bold action. What, what, you know, I keep asking anyone who will, who will listen to me, why didn't we evacuate these people before we withdrew our own troops? Just even two months ago, we had all the people and equipment in place to be able to move these people relatively quickly out of Afghanistan to just about anywhere we wanted to in the world. Now, we've got just about 600 soldiers left in Afghanistan. They guard the embassy, and the airport in Kabul. That's it. So if you're an Afghan, you know, I have, we have a podcast called Wartime Allies, where we, we actually interview these people who are currently trapped over there, and, and they tell us their stories. And it's, it's, it's harrowing. I talked to a guy named Wardak the, uh, two weeks ago, who is somewhere in Afghanistan outside of Kabul. And what he told me is the Taliban are five minutes down the road from him. And there's no way he can get to Kabul. The only way that this guy's life is going to be saved is if we were to send forces out to go in, and get him, right? Two months ago, we had the capability to do that. Now, we don't. And so the, the reality is, is that we're terrified that unless people are in Kabul, they're going to get left behind. And so we, uh, th there's an organization called the Association of Wartime Allies. And what, we, what they did was they, uh, they surveyed this population in Afghanistan to try to figure out where they all are. And the, the results were terrifying. What they learned was that half of this population are outside of Kabul with no means to get to Kabul. And when you do the numbers, that, that equates to about 40,000 people that are potentially gonna be left behind to be slaughtered. That's why I keep asking, why didn't we do this when we had the forces in place to do so? You know, again, two months ago, it was not inconceivable that special operations teams, special forces teams would get on helicopters, fly out to remote villages and pick these people up and bring them to air bases and put them on planes. Now. We don't have the forces to do it. What would be required now is we would have to send back in like the entirety of the 82nd Airborne because they're one of our units that are on recall orders. They can be deployed anywhere in the world within 48 hours. We would have to recall the entire 82nd Airborne. We'd have to fly them all over to Afghanistan. And then they'd have to go out and retake 
airfields that just two months ago used to be U.S. air bases, right? But have now some of them have now fallen to the Taliban, right? Um, and so they'd have to retake these places. I, that's just not politically feasible. Right? I, you, none of us think that this president is going to order in U.S. forces back in Afghanistan for the purposes of securing uh, territory to facilitate an evacuation of people outside of Kabul. And that's what's so frustrating about all of this is we had the means to do all of this just two months ago. What we lacked was the courage and conviction to do the right thing. Now we still lack the courage and conviction to do the right thing, though I, I think the movement we built has instilled some of that. But what we now lack is most importantly the, is the equipment and the personnel to do it. So it's, 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 it's really, really disappointing because at the end of the day, it seems that it's a combination of bureaucratic malfeasance, bureaucratic ineptitude, and just an inability to, to, to take the bold, necessary action that's needed in this case to ultimately save as many lives as possible. I know it's a start um, that the interpreters are going to be brought to Guam and that some of the uh, allies who have helped out under this Operation Allies Refuge will be brought to safety and be brought to Guam. But it just seems like it's such a waste that people are going to get ambushed by these Taliban, Taliban death squads. And you were talking about the podcast. I had heard an anecdote from one of your uh, former uh, military friends over there, uh, Sharif, uh, that you were talking about. And it's a powerful podcast for those people that want to get a chance to listen. The podcast is called Wartime Allies with Matt Zeller. And they're talking about basically knowing that you're going to be killed, whether it's a day, whether it's a week, whether it's a month, the Taliban is waiting to take out these interpreters and these allies of the Western world. How well known is it uh, in Afghanistan who these allies of the United States are? So let's start off with in the early days of our war experience, like my guy, Janice, the guy who saved my life, they didn't veil themselves. He never wore like any face covering. And so I'd ask him, I said, I understand, Janice. I've seen, you know, friends of mine who've been to Iraq, all the interpreters there cover their faces. Why aren't you, any of you guys covering your faces? And you know what he said? He said, this is my country. I want them to know this face. They should be afraid of this face, right? Mm. These were brave people, honorable people who didn't want to hide their identity. The next thing is, is that they didn't wear our uniforms. They didn't have body armor. Janice wasn't supposed to be armed. We were breaking some rules, letting him be armed, right? It, it, we didn't provide them with arms, by the way. They had to buy their own like equipment. So if you go out on patrol, there's a bunch of people all wearing the same uniform and they're walking around with one guy who's, you know, in tennis shoes and just civilian clothes. One of these things doesn't look like the other. That's the interpreter. We had these radios called ICOM radios. They're kind of like CB radios, right? Like just regular walkie talkies, but anybody can hear anybody saying anything else. And so our interpreters would listen to the Taliban, talk to each other on the radios. And the code that they would use to describe the interpreters would they'd say, shoot the eyes, shoot the eyes first. Because they understood that the interpreters were our eyes and our ears. They were our cultural and linguistic bridge to the world around us. And that without them, we couldn't, we couldn't do our jobs. I'll give you an example. Janice and I, when we give a talk, we always walk out to an audience. I walk out first and, I, and I'll say to an audience, Salam Alaikum. Most people will just kind of stare back at me and a couple will say back, Wa Alaikum Salam. All that means is peace be to you and, and peace be unto you. Islamic way of saying hi. And then I'll say, Chetrasti. And everyone just stares at me. And so I'll say a little bit more like, Chetrasti. 
People just stare at me. And I start to get agitated. Chetorasti. Chetorasti. And I start yelling at the audience, right? I'm really mad and I'm, I'm very uh, animated. And at that point, Janice walks out and he says to the audience in English, he's just asking, how are you? Why aren't you answering him? And that's the whole point. If you can't get, hi, how are you? Correct. How are you going to be able to tell someone, shoot to your left, run forward, duck, stop shooting, go get that? Like, do you understand that like, we yeah. couldn't do our jobs without the interpreters? And the Taliban understood that they were the critical link. And that if they could kill the interpreters or dissuade them from working with us, that we would be in an, incapable of being able to do our jobs over there. And they were right. And so these people, they didn't just recognize them on the battlefield. The Taliban are a very smart organization. They kept records. They have hit teams that are assigned to kill these people. They have hit lists. Most importantly, we had a biometrics database. So everybody had like their irises and their fingerprints taken. If you worked for us, you were, you know, you had all your information taken and that's how we were able to ID who you were at at a base to let you on the base and, and give you privileged access to us and our equipment. The Taliban have gotten hold not only of that biometrics databases, but the devices that they can use on people to verify them. And what they're doing is they've established checkpoints on all of the highways between the cities. And anytime a bus comes through or a car comes through, they stop, they take a picture of you. In that picture, they get your iris scan. Then they, they, they take your thumb and they, they do a thumbprint. And guess what? The device thinks about it for a second. It checks your information against the database that we built, that they've stolen. And if your information pops up as former interpreter, they ask you to step out of the car and they kill you on the side of the road. It just seems like we have a moral obligation to rescue these people that we're not living up to. And it seems like it's really sending a horrible message um, towards future potential allies of, well, if the United States didn't follow through on their promise in this war, what makes them think that they're going to follow through and we offer our services the next time they're needed? That's such a great point, John. The so what of all of this is really simple. If Janice was here, he would tell you that one of the main reasons why he was standing next to me in that battle was because he believed that we were honorable people who kept their word, right? He'd also be the first to tell you that if that was not the case, he probably wouldn't have been there. And so that how that I just can't help but wondering if we fail to keep this promise, who's ever going to trust us again, right? Yeah. How are we ever going to be able to look future allies in their face and say to them with any seriousness, yeah, if, if you find yourself in duress because you choose to befriend us, we'll take care of you in your own. When all they're going to have to do is point to, you know, this is the thing about this. When the Taliban kill these people, they don't just like execute them. They film it. They make snuff films out of these, out of their murders. And they put these films online. You and I are not the intended audience. The intended audiences are these future allies. And so again, when we go back to the scenario, what, happens in, in a future war, we go to befriend some people and we say, we need you to help us. And they say, you know what? You said the same thing to the Afghans. And look at all these videos now on YouTube. We know what happens to people you befriend. American friendship is a death sentence. That's what I'm afraid of. That's the so what in all of this. It's not just the morally correct thing to do here in saving these people. This, this is a never again moment in the making. And we have you know, a horrible track record as a, as a species with, with preventing never again moments. We might be able to get this one right. I fear that we're not, but 
from a self-interested standpoint, you'd think we'd at least care about keeping Americans alive in future wars. And this is the best way I know how to do that. If we save a life today, I promise you, you're going to be saving countless lives tomorrow. As somebody who fought in these wars and served our country, this is shameful. And it's, it, it's, hurt, it's hurting. It, it, there's, there, I feel you know, a tremendous amount of emotional pain over how we're, we're conducting ourselves. Because I was one of the people who had to look these people in the eye and make that promise on behalf of our country. And thus far, we're failing to keep it. So I am determined to do whatever I can, play whatever small part I might be able to play in ensuring that our country keeps its promise to as many of these people as we can with the tragic and reluctant understanding that we're not going to be able to save everybody. I just, I'm haunted by this. I, I really am. Um, that, that I'm haunted by the idea that we could have saved all of these people and that we just, we chose not to. We've talked a little bit about your interpreter, now lifelong friend, uh, Janice Shinwari, who has been uh, evacuated, who does live here in the United States. Can you take us through the pivotal role that he played in saving your life? Your unit's coming under fire. Uh, you're serving in Ghazni, Afghanistan, and you come under fire through an ambush. What? Take us through that moment of how Janice helped to save your life. We had been sent out on a mission that day to go out to a police outpost. And it was really simple. We were just going to see if the police were at their, their outpost. Were they doing their jobs? Were they getting paid? You know, what conditions were they living in? No one had been to this outpost in over a year, right? So we had no idea what we were going to find. We get out to the outpost and uh, we find this ragtag band of Afghan men, no uniforms, barely any bullets, you know, haven't been paid in months, very hungry. And I asked the police commander, how much territory did he control? And he, he, bit it, he pointed in a circle and he said, I control everything within 700 meters. I said, that's a really specific number. Why, why do you say that? And he goes, that's as far as my weapons can shoot. Everything past that belongs to the Taliban. So it's time for us to leave this outpost after doing our thing there. And uh, long story short, um, we decided to take a route back. We, we, we had taken one road to get here and we were going to take another road going back because we didn't want to just turn around and go back the same way. Because if you're the Taliban, all you have to do is ambush us is just wait for us to do the U-turn and then, you know, set up an ambush wherever you want. So we were trying to keep the Taliban guessing. So we decided to take this route that none of us had ever been on before. And um, we got lost. So we asked this farmer for directions and long story short, he ended up put, basically pointing us right into the middle of a Taliban ambush. They destroyed our lead. We had a three vehicle convoy. They destroyed the lead vehicle um, with an IED. We then got out of our vehicles to get into a big perimeter to, to try to defend ourselves. And about an hour after you know, setting up our perimeter, that's when they started attacking us. They initiated their their battle against us by firing a rocket propelled grenade into my vehicle. And then for the next hour, the 15 of us in this, in this, this mission had to defend ourselves against an onslaught of about what we were told was 50 of them versus the 15 of us. Hour into this firefight, I, um, I've ended up on my own out in the middle of this field. And I've been, I've been knocked out a couple of times by explosions, either mortar rounds or rocket propelled grenades, like landing really close to me. And, um, this one round comes in, and I don't know, landed maybe 10, 15 feet away from me, a couple of meters. And it sent me flying into this, this hole. And I remember I, I, I must have gotten knocked out because I don't remember 
you know, landing in the hole or anything else. I just remember the, the explosion and then being in the air. But when I came to, I was, I was laying on my, my back, I was looking up at the sky and there was this battle going on all around me. And I remember looking at my watch and my watch said it was 4.50 in the afternoon, 16.50 in military time. It was Monday, April the 28th. And I just remember thinking, I'm 26 years old and I'm going to die today. I'm going to die on the side of this road in this field. And I just remember thinking, okay, well, this is it. I'm going to die. And, um, you know, I'm never going to have kids. My parents are about to get the worst phone call of their lives. There's nothing I can do. I figured, okay, well, I'll just, I'll go out fighting. So I, I stood up to start shooting back and then someone saw me and they just yelled, Zeller, don't shoot to your rear friendlies. And I turned and I looked and there were these three up armored Humvees driving like bats out of hell coming from the village that was next to us. And the, the lead vehicle gets right up next to me and the driver's side door flung open. And it's this sergeant from South Carolina named Mark Robinson who looked at me and said, Hey, sir, I hear you're in a pickle. I brought a Mark 19 grenade launcher where you want it he had brought a machine gun that fires grenades. It's what we call a battle ending weapon. Cause usually once we started using it, the, the battle ended. And so I pointed to the ridge line that was behind me. And I, I said, we're getting attacked from up there. And uh, they drove off at that point to shooting at the ridge line to, to, to fight off the, the, the Taliban. I should have turned at this point back to monitor what's called my fields of fire, which is the direction in which these gentlemen had, had driven in from, which was where the village was. But I, I lost my military bearing in that moment, and I turned, and instead of monitoring my fields of fire, I turned to watch them assault the ridgeline, because I had never seen a Mark 19 fired in anger before. And um, what I missed was the two Taliban fighters who, as soon as I turned to look away, rounded this building and started running across the battlefield to either shoot or take me hostage. I don't know. I never got a chance to learn it, because... From my perspective, I'm watching these vehicles assault a ridgeline. And then the next thing I feel is this force just slam into me on my, my left side. And it sent me flying back into that hole. And as I hit the ground and the wind got knocked out of me, I heard the unmistakable sound of an AK-47 going off. And my brain just went, okay, well, that's it. You've been shot. And, you know, even shot by bad guys because we don't use an AK AK-47s in our military. And I couldn't breathe. So it, it like reinforced the feeling. And then all of a sudden there's this man standing over me and he's looking down at me with his hand out. And he said, and, and, and he's, you know, giving me the motion like to help me up. And I, I just looked up at him and I said, who in the hell are you? And he said, I'm Janice. I'm one of your translators. You're not safe. He pulls me up out of the, the hole. And um, that's when I looked past him. And that's where I saw the bodies, the two guys he had just shot and killed, saving my life. I shouldn't be here. The only reason I am is because this Afghan man to whom I was a complete stranger. I mean, we had said all of five words to each other before this. We had met in a receiving line 10 days before this battle in which I said, hi, my name is Matt. I look forward to working with you. And he said, hi, I'm Janice. Uh, me too. And that was it. We hadn't spoken until this moment. We didn't talk until the next morning at breakfast. Um, I found him eating alone in our chow hall. And I realized at that moment that I was looking at my guardian angel. And I didn't, 
I couldn't remember his name or know any, didn't know anything about him. Didn't know what his favorite song is, his favorite food. Did he have family? Nothing. So I, I walked up to him and I asked if I could eat with him. We're the only two people in the whole dining hall. He said, sure. I sat down and I said, you know, um, thanks for saving my life yesterday. You, uh, I, I owe you. I owe you what's called a life debt. If there's anything I can ever do to repay that, just, just ask me. He, he kind of dismissed it like it, was, like it was nothing. And I asked him, I said, you know, why did you save my life? And he said to me, well, you're a guest in my country. I take the bullet before you do. Again, like I, 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 he dismissed it as if I'd asked him, why is the sky blue? And I said, well, you're a real shot. You're a real hell of a shot. I'm glad you're on our side. <laughs> and then it dawned on me. I didn't know why he was on our side. So I asked him, wait, why are you on our side? And he said, you know nothing of Afghans. I said, you're right. I don't. Will you teach me? He goes, okay. I am on your side because my mom would have kicked my ass if I joined the Taliban, which is not the answer I was expecting to hear. I said, what do you mean? Wait a minute. I don't understand. Because your mom forbade you from joining the Taliban? Like, so you're telling me that everybody on the other side of yesterday's battle had mom's permission to be there? And he goes, yeah, if, if mom's still alive, probably. And I said, well, I understand what, what makes your mother so much more enlightened than their moms. And he goes, oh, my mom can read for herself. She's literate. She's read the Quran. She knows what they preach is and is, is not Islam. It's bullshit. And then he looked me right in the eye and he got really serious. He said, why do you think they burned down girls' schools? because they are afraid of an Afghanistan that is filled with moms like mine. Because moms like mine mean that their, their movement ends. It was the most important lesson anybody taught me the entire war was if, you know, if we were going to outlast these people and their oppressive ideology, we were going to have to give people as much access to the marketplace of ideas as we could. That was the, I still think to this day, you know, I, it's, it's been hard to read all the news reports coming out of Afghanistan. And again, you go back to that primal question, was it worth it? And you start thinking, maybe it's not. Like, look at everything that we've, we've accomplished. It just seems to have just been for naught. Like all the bases are gone, all the outposts are gone. But the thing that hasn't been swept away yet is all those literate girls who are becoming literate women that we taught to read and write. And if I have any hope for Afghanistan, it's in them. It's in the women. It's, it's, it's incredible. And, and I appreciate the detail that, you know, you went through and taking us through that, that the battle scenes and how Janice literally saved your life and that friendship that formed from that moment of people from two, I mean, you're from Rochester, New York, upstate yep. New York, and he's from Afghanistan. And yet the, the similarities in the upbringings, I mean, it's incredible to hear that you guys, had more in common than you thought. And the fact that these people, I mean, that, that's just such an incredible story of a lifelong friendship that's being formed. We used to sit together at night in our, our, um, our barracks and uh, the interpreters all slept in one building. We were all in another, but I would always have Janice come over to my bunk for tea at night and we'd show each other pictures, mostly me showing him pictures of America I showed him pictures of the Finger Lakes and of Syracuse. And, you know, um, this is actually a random Syracuse connection. So Janice actually is not just responsible for saving my life. Um, your listeners, many of your listeners might know a guy named Ben Tupper. 
If, uh, if you've lived on Syracuse and at one point you've ever rented from Ben, rentfromben.com, um, or if you ever go down Euclid and you see all of the awesome artwork along the streets, that's all Ben. So Ben Tupper, Syracuse alumni, and I get together in 2009 after I've gotten back from the war. And we meet up at Fagan's. And eventually I, I tell him the story of how Janice saves my life. But I don't mention Janice's name. I just say my, my interpreter. Ben, at the end of the story, stops and he's just staring at me. And he goes, what outpost were you on again? I said, you've never heard of it before. It wasn't on anybody's map. It was called Fob Vulcan. He goes, you mean in Ghazni? I go, how do you know that? Again, you either knew our outpost because you had been there at one point as a guest or because you've been stationed there. It wasn't on anybody's maps. And he said, was your interpreter's name Janice? And I almost dropped my beer. I said, how do you know this? And he goes, he was my interpreter in 2006. He saved my life in a firefight in a place called Andor. I'm one of five Americans that can point to this guy and say, he's my guardian angel. And ironically, two of us are Syracuse alumni. Gosh, I mean, that's unbelievable. The, the Syracuse connections and the least expected uh, places out there in a corner and outposts of the world that none of us, again, have heard of unless you've been stationed there. We all proudly flew the Cuse uh, flag, by the way. Just want to point that out. The, the Cuse flag has flown over Fob Vulcan at one point. Uh, and uh, I, I can promise you that there have been uh, several orange basketball games that have been watched from its chow hall. And, uh, and you'll be proud to know that all of – there was a lot of us in this unit because we all came from the same upstate New York National Guard um, unit from out of Syracuse. There were a number of us who brought along our, you know, real, real men wear orange or real veterans wear orange shirts, right? And uh, as tradition, we stood and clapped until the first, the first basket went in. So um, a lot of traditions were kept alive on the other side of the world in the remote outpost. <laughs> I love the stories, Matt. I love hearing the connections. And, you know, I, I, I do want to um, – another a more serious uh, – topic here, but you alluded to this earlier. I want you to take me back to the fall of 2001. You're a sophomore at Hamilton College. You haven't yet gone to Syracuse for your master's from Maxwell. What were your plans for the future at the time? And then how did all of that change with the terrorist attacks of September 11th? I was going to school because I wanted to be a civil rights attorney. I wanted to go to law school. I was on a pre-law track. Ironically, I was in a class on the history of the Silk Road. And that morning we were talking about Afghanistan. Class ends at 10.15. I'm walking back across campus to where Hamilton, their mail center is in the middle of the campus in this building called Beinecke. So I was walking over to the mail center to check my mailbox. When I walked in and there was this crowd of people all gathered around a TV. And on the screen was ABC News. It was split screen. On one half of the screen, it said World Trade Center. And on the other half, it said the Pentagon and both screens both images showed buildings on fire with a lot of smoke. And I remember I, I, I asked a, a lady I was standing next to where the other tower was because the scene that they were showing in New York City only showed one of the towers. And she had this thousand yard stare thing going on where she's just staring at the screen. And I just remember she didn't turn at me. She just said, it's not there anymore. It, it, it fell down, it's gone. And then on the next thing I remember, Peter Jennings said, we're getting word that the other tower is about to collapse. And then I watched, you know, fall, the North Tower come down on television. It was really hard to go to class after that. It was really hard to think about pre-law or any of it. 
My grandfather joined the Navy the day after Pearl Harbor in 1941. My great-grandfather was a rough rider with Teddy Roosevelt and was a cavalry officer in the trenches in France in World War I. Upstairs next to their uniforms hangs my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather's Civil War Union Army uniform that he wore at Gettysburg. My family's fought for the United States since we got off the boat from Scotland in the 1760s. I had not earned any of the privilege that I was born into. I had not earned any of the comfortability that I was accustomed to. Others had done it for me. And at that moment, I could not stomach the idea that I wouldn't answer my country's call to service like so many others of my ancestors had. So if my best friend was here, he'd tell you that a couple of weeks after the attack, we went to a mall and he left me alone in the food court for 10 minutes. And when he came back, I had enlisted. And that's pretty much what happened. I first recruiter I saw in uniform, I walked up, it was an army recruiter. And I said, where do I sign? The next thing I know I was enlisted, I was private first class seller. When the military came back to me and they said, uh, you've got a lot of leadership potential. We'd like you to consider becoming an officer. I said, well, what that, what would that entail? And they said, well, have you thought about trying the ROTC program? Um, and I said, Hamilton doesn't have one. They said, Syracuse does. And so that's actually how I first started coming to campus. Starting my, my junior year, I was a member of the Syracuse ROTC program. I know it's a hard question, Matt, because there's 10,000 directions you can go. I mean, you've served on the board of directors with the Syracuse University Alumni Association. You're flying the orange flag over in Afghanistan, cheering on the team in March Madness. You clearly bleed orange. If I had to ask you what role Syracuse has played in your career, how would you answer that? You know, I, I get recruited into the Central Intelligence Agency out of Maxwell by a Maxwell alumni. I go to Syracuse for my ROTC commissioning source. Like I, I'm in the military, you know, I'm an officer in the military and I end up on, on this assignment all because I, my connections to Syracuse. Um, but I'd say most importantly, it's this. It was July of 2013. I was sitting at the Whitman School doing the entrepreneurial boot camp for veterans with disabilities. Um, so I, I, I have a, I got injured in, in the battles, so I have a, a couple of injuries that qualify me for, for disability. And um, I had uh, applied to the, the boot camp because I had a couple of ideas that I wanted to pursue from a business standpoint. And I was fortunate enough to be selected to come attend the 10 day you know, boot camp at Syracuse. I'm sitting there one afternoon, it's middle of July, and Jake Wood from Team Rubicon and Mike Irwin uh, from Team Red, White, and Blue are pitching us assembled veterans on the merits of starting a nonprofit versus a for-profit company. Uh, when my Facebook messenger pops up and it's Janice, the guy who saved my life, saying, hey, brother, I just got word uh, the base that I'm, I work on is being closed in October. All of us interpreters on this base are going to be laid off. And that means I'm going to have to move back home. And one of the privileges of being an interpreter is that you get to live on the base that you work at. So as long as you have a job, you're basically safe. As soon as that job goes away, you're in danger. And that's when he said, brother, there's a hit team that lives outside of the base that's assigned to kill me. You know, unless you get me my visa by October, I'm a dead man. That whole effort kicks off in that Whitman classroom. No one left behind doesn't exist without Syracuse. Like I, I, I suddenly perk up and start really paying attention to the nonprofit. 
you know, stuff. I get connected to two of the best nonprofit leaders in the country. When it comes time to begin writing my business plan for how I'm going to develop Noma Behind, it's all of the instruction that I've learned at, at, at this program that, that guides me. Um, when it comes time to, to make use of my media connections, it's friends of mine who've gone through Newhouse that are coaching me on how to properly speak to the media and press and how to, how to sort of do my own comp, like press shop, right? When it comes to developing the policy papers that I've written along the way in my life, it's all of the training that I was given at Maxwell. You know, I think the last count was like no one left behind had helped over 35,000 people get to the United States and resettle. And I keep telling Janice, do you realize it's not just those 35,000 people? It's all the kids they're going to have and the kids those kids are going to have. We have no idea what great things these people are going to go on to do. But Syracuse made all that possible. None of this happens without Syracuse. None of those people are alive without what the training, the mentorship, the experiences, the life connections. I mean, so many. The only reason Janice gets his visa is because half the people I know in government went to Maxwell with me and I could call them up as being fellow members of the, you know, the Maxwell mafia and be like, hey, we got to get this guy out of here. Can you help me? I, again, John, that's why I, I don't know if adequate words exist for me to properly describe just how much I love Syracuse and how important it is, not just to me in my life, but to lives of countless others. Without Syracuse, none of this happens. I want to thank you, Matt, for opening up. I know you talked about a lot of really sensitive issues and topics here, and I think our audience is better off for having heard the discussion that we've had today on the podcast. Matt, keep up the great work with No One Left Behind. Keep up the great work advocating for our troops wherever they happen to be, and especially for those valuable allies who need to be rescued. And good luck with everything. Hopefully Guam, if that happens, is a success for you and you can help see the fruits of your labor pay off. I really appreciate it, John. Thank you. And again, I can't thank Syracuse enough. Even in Afghanistan, I can't tell you just how much of a wonderful escape it was from that existence to, you know, every couple of times a week to be able to turn on a TV and be back in the dome with a bunch of other fans just rooting <laughs> on our team. That That was such a wonderful piece of home that so many of us carried with us. I, I really hope that, that, that the alumni and the, and the folks at the university just understand how much um, the Syracuse family loves being a part of that family and how much it meant to all of us when, when we were overseas to, to know that that family was still thriving and still going on and that there could be a little bit of us that we could carry with it across the, the, the globe was, was really special. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast. 